Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get started, I just have a few short messages. First off, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow and help me get on bigger and better guests. Also, don't forget you can pre-order my book, To the Moon, The GameStop Saga, right now by following the links in the description below. We've also got a few quick sponsors for the show today. Cryptocurrencies are all the rage these days. Over 100 million people now own cryptocurrency. Some for the memes, some for the long-term value, and some for the underlying technology. But there hasn't been a coin or token that has emerged yet that truly replaces cash or currency. This is where Dash comes in. Dash is digital cash, a user-focused cryptocurrency which you can spend anywhere, anytime, and any amount for fees less than one cent. With hashtag Dash Direct, people can spend their Dash at over 155,000 major US retailers and get a discount and money back into their Dash wallet. No banks, no fiat, just pure crypto with an average saving of 5%. Anyone can participate in the network and Dash is widely available for purchase around the world. The ingenious masternode network means sending any sum of money around the world is as simple as tapping your phone at your local grocery store. So you can say goodbye to slow transactions, complex international account numbers, and high transaction fees. Dash gives you the freedom to move your money any way you want. Grab a coffee, split a check, or pay your phone bill. Dash moves money anywhere to anyone instantly for less than a cent. It's the month of Halloween, and the witching hour is upon us. It's the perfect time to try out one of the spookiest and most intriguing crime podcasts I have ever come across. How I Died is a fiction podcast with a full cast of voice actors and high-quality production value. The series follows John Spacer, who moves to the small town of Springfield, albeit a much less yellow or cheery version of The Simpsons' hometown, and is confronted with a case he's not so sure he can handle on his own. A woman found dead with her husband and child both missing. In episode one, John begins to hear the voice of the dead woman on his table, and he talks to her as he deciphers just how she might have died. No one knows about John's gift, and he has to hide it from his boss, an untrusting sheriff who is always looking over his shoulder. The first two seasons of the show are available on all podcast apps, but be warned, these stories are not for the faint-hearted. The series is for adult audiences, covering topics of murder, threats of violence, and stalking. How I Died has passed over 1 million downloads since its launch, with a vibrant community, all trying to solve mysteries along with the show. So that's How I Died. Find it wherever you get your podcasts, and see if you can solve the mystery before it is too late. Links for everything will be in the description below. So check them out and then please enjoy the podcast. So I believe we are live. How exciting. Um, So hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I'm here with Ethan Liu, who is the author of the brand new book, uh, Once a Bitcoin Miner. Ethan, welcome to the show. Josh, hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, not a problem. Um, you, the story is that your story of your book is, is so fascinating. But um, before we get into all that, I, do you want to just uh, give like a, an introduction of yourself, like a little brief background for, for people who maybe haven't heard of you before? Yeah, so I write a column in this Canadian newspaper called the Financial Post. And I used to work for Reuters. And I'm an author of two books. And one of which is about Bitcoin, because we all contain multitudes. And I was an early investor in this and early is of course a subjective term. So it was around 2013, I got into it and the new book is about my adventures in this space. Mm. So the, the thing that really interested me, um, when I saw first saw your book was, yeah, it's, it's about, uh, trying to teach cryptocurrency or at least a part of it is about trying to teach cryptocurrency to the North Koreans and this guy, Virgil Griffith, who has just been, uh, sentenced. So. Uh, why don't we like go back to the start of that? Uh, like, how did you end up in in North Korea? Like, how, how do you what like series of events led you to that? 
Well, yeah, uh, before I go into that, I should say I wasn't there to teach uh, crypto to the North Koreans. It's just <laughs> what Virgil was convicted of. But as for how I ended up there, it's quite a long story. So uh, basically two reasons. Uh, I think number one is that I was born in China and I've always talked to my parents about how weird North Korea is and all the strange stuff that comes out of there. And my father would say, it's not weird at all because that is quite similar to the China in which I grew up. Uh, he's saying that. And China has changed so much throughout the years, but North Korea, it has remained rather stagnant. So I've, I've always thought that if I could go to North Korea, I can see the land my parents grew up in, kind of like a time capsule. And that has always been on my bucket list as a result. I, I tried to go several times. In uh, 2014, they were holding a marathon and they had the Ebola outbreak. So they, I actually trained for that. So, And second reason is the crypto reason. And when North Korea announced that crypto conference, so it was open to the public, anyone could go. And I've read a lot about all the shady stuff that North Korea has been accused of doing with respect to crypto, uh, because it's been subject to lots of sanctions. And theoretically, crypto is a way to get out of those sanctions. So I thought that if I were to go to North Korea, I can get a, an upfront look, uh, like a front row seat into what it's been doing. So those those are my two motivations okay so um then the the next thing i, I basically want to want to try and understand then is so this was just like a, a cryptocurrency conference like a like they had the bitcoin conference in miami except this one was in in north korea that was how it was sold to us but it actually turned out to be completely different it was basically a glorified tourism trip on the first day we were told that the itinerary for the conference itself which was only two days out of seven it wasn't determined yet and therefore and not therefore but also that we weren't there to take in information from the north koreans we were there to present to them and that was very unexpected and i think for some of the people like one or two among the eight foreigners they were expecting to be speakers. But for the rest of us, we were really taken by surprise. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess you, if you're arriving, like just thinking you're going to stand around and, and chat to people about, about cryptocurrency, even in North Korea, you're, you're not really expecting to then be presenting to them about it. Uh, first off, before we I, I get into like the one of the next things I want to ask is, um, what were the accusations being made of North Korea and what have they been accused of using cryptocurrency to do, basically? Mm -hmm. So uh, they have been accused of stealing lots of coins. And, you know, North Korea, it's a country that gets a lot of its money from criminal enterprises. So the, the, the fact that it's accused of hacking uh, all this crypto stuff, it's not that surprising because it's been uh, accused of smuggling drugs through their embassies and so on and so forth and on a higher level than simply stealing coins there is also the fear that the north korea can transact internationally with crypto and get around all the sanctions crippling its economy okay so basically they're trying to use this non-centralized um and theoretically anonymous currency uh, in order to yeah circumvent the the international sanctions being put on the yeah on the the regime so when when you arrived in in north korea what was your first impression of the place like what and what 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 sort of thing were you walking into at the at the at the crypto conference like was it in i don't know like a big building or a hall or just a room it was kind of like that it was like a big conference room and with uh, imagine like a bigger version of that and the north koreans would be gathered there and at the start of the conference they'll they'll march us in we'll all sit around a table and it's quite formal and they called us a delegation which i've always found so strange mm, yeah yeah it's a delegation i mean maybe that's just their way of presenting it and um, propaganda wise 
so then when you arrive and you're, you've, you were talking to uh, some people there and then you ended up, I think you said, having to give a talk, um, essentially. What were the talks about and, and what were the North Koreans interested in learning about? So one thing I, I, I should say is that I don't think we ever got to interact with the North Korea's crypto folks. So the our North Korean minders, they were they were on the tourism side, tourism and cultural side. And the previous um, engagements involved chaperoning foreign journalists. So I and they told us North Korea doesn't know anything about crypto, which is definitely a lie. <laughs> and so the conference itself, I won't go too deeply into what each person's person specifically said. I actually declined to present because, and Virgil is still due to be sentenced, so I don't want to affect that in any way. But generally, because I think in large part, because so many of the presenters did not expect to be presenters, there was very little of substance presented. And the presentation materials were given to them and they were publicly available research papers and what was discussed at the conference it's really just publicly available information mm. so i've heard this i've heard this um talked about so i watched your interview on i think it was coinbase uh where you were talking about this and and you kind of alluded to this idea that maybe he committed a crime in giving them the information as as like a an educator providing a service rather than um, him being sentenced for uh, just speaking because I, I get uh, you were you were talking about that that was the one of the defenses that they were going to use was that to say he's just presenting information freely that is available on the internet um so do you think he I, I know he's pled guilty now but do you do you think he committed a, like a, a really egregious crime? Uh, well, I think if you go by the letter of the law, I think he definitely broke it. Um, but did he do something that is morally wrong? Uh, I, I think that's the question. And I don't think so. I don't think he had the intention of really helping North Korea in a geopolitical way. And he certainly didn't benefit personally. Like like all of us, he paid a lot of money to be there. Mm. Yeah, it's not it's not cheap to get to North Korea. Um, so, did you? So you don't think you you got to to interact with any of the the North Koreans or any of the crypto people? Like, who were you basically just talking to? Like a handful of people in the government. Like, did you meet any of the that more high ranking officials, or was it just um, like a handful of people? Well, I would say our North Korean minders uh, they seem to be high ranking people because we had a lot of interaction with them. And they spoke really good English and they, they've been abroad and, you know, they, they've watched the Avengers. So uh, <laughs> they, they, they definitely were not. And we even talked about families and stuff like they, like this guy's fam, both his parents were doctors, you know, they definitely were not ordinary North Koreans. Um, but with respect to any real high level interaction, there, there really was none. We, we did have a meeting with one of their state um, state companies, and I really have no idea why that was arranged. Uh, but that that was a one-off thing. We met them for for like an hour or two, and that was it. Okay. So uh, I was listening to this uh, this interview over the last few days with um, on Lex Friedman's podcast with uh, Alex Gladstein, uh, the one I was talking about before we started here. So he has been he was talking a lot about this idea of cryptocurrency being able to defeat authoritarians and, and tyrannical governments. Now, to a lot of people, that probably sounds like the most pipe-dreamy Bitcoin maximalist rubbish. <laughs> Do you see any merit in the argument? Uh, because, I mean, he, he was making the case basically that if you give people the ability to spend money that isn't controlled by an authoritarian state, then that will help to break the break the grip that 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 government has on on the country so do you think there's there's any merit in this or is this just like yeah bitcoin maxis um just yeah living their pipe dream so i i should first say i i i love what alex gladstein writes i've uh, he's some guy he's a guy i follow 
But I think when he says, you know, Bitcoin is something that can defeat uh, tyrannical governments, it's the same thing as saying democracy is like a very good thing for us. And it's like, it's like an ideal. But I think when you put it into practice, uh, it's, it's not always perfect, but it doesn't mean it's not a goal we should strive toward. And I would actually tell a Gladstein story. He, um, he talked once about an Afghan woman who, uh, and stop me if you've heard of this before. Uh, no, he, I haven't. He's talking about when, when Afghan fell to the Taliban and our asset was falling and when the refugees were trying to escape, they, they don't get to take their money with them because of how bad the infrastructure is and how bad the currency is. It's not often talked about, but when they leave, they're often penniless. And But there was this young woman, because there was a period of westernization in Afghanistan when the coalition-backed government was still in power and she was able, she had Bitcoin, she knew what it was. And she traveled through Iran and Turkey, and it was quite a harrowing journey. Her ship sank in the Mediterranean, but ultimately, because she memorized her passphrase, she had nothing but the clothes in her back, but she was able to carry two Bitcoins in her head, and she was able to fund a new life in Germany. Wow, that's such a great story. So, yeah, so uh, yeah, because I guess that's that's something that people don't often think about is like you... We're just like, oh, I got my, my debit card. That's all I need, right? Um, but uh, often when, yeah, like when you said, when you're, when you're leaving countries like this, um, it can be very difficult, especially in the midst of absolute madness to maybe like withdraw your money from the bank um, and then take it with you. So do you, do you see this remaining as such a, a free and sort of unregulated space. Um, so I, I was reading your piece about um, the, the comparisons between uh, this like new age of, of cryptocurrency and like the Wild West ethos from, from like, yeah, the gold rush in America. Uh, do you see this remaining as unregulated and as sort of free? Um, or do you think that it's going to be there's maybe we've got a couple of years of it being this this crazy and then governments will clamp down? I'll say yes and no. I think governments are definitely clamping down really quickly. And if you look at what's happening in the US, the regulators are increasingly hawkish. And uh, a while ago, they uh, they were announcing regulatory actions against two companies, and they uh, they didn't even to, they didn't even bother to censor the name of the companies. They were supposed to be blacked out, but they forgot to. Uh, black out the file name it's evident that i feel like they don't even care anymore they're just going after everyone and i think it it's not necessarily a thing about crypto it's it reflects broader priorities of the biden administration but the way the us is going i i think it's going to go harder and i think governments are going to follow but you know uh they say at the same time uh, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction and i would cite the example of shapeshift so that is uh, a sort of an exchange, and it recently it uh, announced that it was going to dissolve its corporate structure and become a sort of decentralized entity on the blockchain, the, a sort of program that has no master. And it does that. It's doing that uh, specifically to try to thwart regulators. Okay. So, so what they've have they. When you say they've like dismantled themselves, uh, what do you mean? Have they like just taken apart their their like I don't know administrative thing and and like made it run on blockchain and smart contracts, or have they like bought back all the shares and then made it like a blockchain based ownership thing, or or what do you mean when you say that they've done that? Yeah, I I don't think they've done that yet because it's a long process. They they've said they're going to do it. So uh, it's called a Decentralized Autonomous Organization, uh, a DAO. And that is basically, think of it as like a really big program on the, on the blockchain. Like you, you call that a, a smart contract and basically like a series of smart contracts. So, and it operates on inbuilt rules. So uh, for example, if all the members, they vote, they say, we want to provide funding to this organization and that program will execute it. And so there is no 
there is no head to the snake to cut off anymore, theoretically, at least. Okay, that's cool. Just because I've been doing quite a lot of looking at, um, there's rumors that GameStop are, are planning to issue um, an NFT dividend and they're trying to find ways to escape the general uh, need to trade shares on the the New York Stock Exchange and they're wanting to move to some sort of, yeah, blockchain based uh I have no idea what the like what what it's going to bring but uh, it's 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 something I've been sort of trying to trying to get my head around. Um so why do you think that the the US government and other governments are so hawkish on cryptocurrency? Like it's a uh, is it is it that much of a threat to the the fiat currency and central banking? Hmm. I guess whether it'll actually be a threat it remains to be seen but definitely they view it as a threat. And I, I think specifically for the US, if you look at why they targeted Virgil this way, it's because sanctions have been used increasingly with far greater frequency than before. And sanctions in a world where you know trade is so interconnected, sanctions are very powerful, very devastating. And I think the US loves that tool. And I think there was a there was a piece in the New York Times yesterday about specifically about this. About, I, I think it might have been the first time that the Biden administration actually vocalized this, that cryptocurrencies, they, uh, they, they are a threat to this. Mm. So do you, you mentioned there that there's, there's always like a, an equal and opposite reaction. Do you think that there's a, like a, do you think they understand enough to regulate control and then because i've seen um quite a few nations talking about their own digital currency so the 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 bank of england of 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 sort of coined uh the term bitcoin which is hilarious um and there's like the the fed digital currency that's being talked about there's like the the digital um yen the chinese uh the chinese one and it's, I, I am skeptical that they understand this space enough to either regulate it or create a currency that is used as widely as any other cryptocurrency would be. Uh, do, what do you think? Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of them have different objectives, but if you want to just talk about one of them, which is something I've looked at a lot, I've, I always think about this, it's China. And I think China is a government that's very different from, you know, the, the people behind Bitcoin or, or the US, <laughs> and they are able to affect control in, in a much bigger way. And what it is doing to the, with a digital yuan, I think it will be very successful in the future. We will see a future when everyone in China uses that digital currency. And I think that has a lot of implications for, uh, just for one, like privacy. Mm, yeah. I mean, it's 1.4 billion people, um, I think. China, isn't it? 1.4, I think. Something like that. A lot Over a billion, at least. Uh, it's a lot of people to be using a single currency. Uh, so, yeah, I, I have no doubt that that's going to definitely impact the world. But um, So let, let's go back a little bit and, and talk a bit more about your book. Actually, we've ended up off on a tangent. <laughs> so where did your, where did the first... Where did your book begin? Like, why write this and where did it start? Mm -hmm. So the, the book begins with how I was first introduced uh, to, to Bitcoin. So it was when I was in my second year of university and my friends and I were just on the dark web for no good reason. Mm -hmm. And that, that was how I first came across Bitcoin, that it was the medium of transaction on the dark web. And why it was so, it's because there's no central administrator. The, the funds move theoretically, they can't be frozen, they can't be seized, they can't be blocked. And But it, it did take me a while. I, I, I When I actually invested in Bitcoin, it was almost a year after that, uh, toward the end of 2013. And as for, as, as for why I wrote it, I... Uh, I think there are a lot of books that deal with this from a monetary policy or a computer science perspective, but I, I think there are lots of ways to tell the story of crypto. And I, I try to look at it from a human condition perspective. So it's a narrative nonfiction. It's uh, designed to read like a novel and it's ultimately a story about people and their lives. 
So why what is the what is the message then that you're trying to you're trying to tell or what is the the whole arc of your story? Mm-hmm. The the arc of the story I think it, it follows kind of like a like a hero's journey kind of thing. And and that hero's journey, that story structure it's it, it's born from the western. And I try to frame this in a western because so many people, you know, they say Bitcoin, uh, it's a wild west. And I, I agree with that. But where our conclusions differ is that I don't think the wild west is a bad thing. And what, what the wild west represents to people, and especially uh, during the time of the wild west, why do people head out into the frontier? Because they are seeking riches, opportunity, uh, a place that's welcoming. And not just that, but also that's free from whatever societal hierarchies lay back home. And I think for many people going into crypto, they are seeking that. And so it's a new technology, but I think the story is old as the hills. Mm. So why why do you argue that the Wild West is not a bad thing? Because, I mean, I've heard the, 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 the arguments against it a thousand times, you know, like, oh, people can lose money. Oh, there might be scams. Oh, it's used for criminal activity. Like, why? Why do you believe that those things aren't important, basically? Oh, I, I think absolutely there are aspects of the Wild West that are bad, but I think nothing uh, ever comes about without trial, pain, and struggle. And, you know, what comes out of this, um, you have to take the good along with the bad. Okay. So then what is what is your so you you were lucky enough i hope you mind talking about a little bit about your other book um so you were lucky enough to to fly into china i would say lucky Um, (laughs) extremely unlucky (laughs) nobody saw that coming (laughs) just the chinese military no um (laughs) the uh, what was that like being there because i mean we we saw some videos coming out of china when when the when everything sort of kicked off but what was the what was the feeling like and the atmosphere and 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 yeah what did you talk to many people on the street about what they thought about what was going on uh well i i definitely didn't talk to many people on the street that there weren't many people on the street it was like uh it was like a movie set you know when you walk around downtown it it got to that empty so I was traveling to China just, uh, it was before any lockdowns happened, even the epicenter city that wasn't locked down at the time. And I had lived through SARS in Asia. So at the time, you know, when you hear about the coronavirus, I definitely didn't think it'll become this bad. I thought it'd be like SARS and that was bad, but that was okay. Hmm. And uh, my grandfather at the time was dying. So I made that trip and while I was in the air, that was when Wuhan, the epicenter city, was sealed off. And I think a lot of what goes on there is spread across the world. And we think of this as normal now because back in Canada here, we endured like six months of lockdowns. So we, we have normalized it. And, you know, uh, we still have a mask mandate. So when I go out, I have to wear a mask. But back then, that was when it first happened. And that was definitely a, a very jarring thing. Mm, yeah, yeah, I bet. it's. Uh, I can't even conceive of what it would be like. I mean, I've said too many bad things about China, um, so I have to wait for the dictatorship to topple before I can feel like I can go there without being in some sort of danger. <laughs> I'd like, But I say this to people, and they're like, oh, don't be so stupid. And I'm like, man, have you seen the stories? They'll arrest people for nothing. And then, the, the, like, there was an Irish guy who was, I think he might still be there, just in a Chinese prison. Um, it's pretty wild. But the what is your impression on why the Chinese government actually ended up banning, um, completely banning cryptocurrency? Like, do they, do they see it as the same sort of threat as the West would, do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And... Not just that, I think what Gladstein says rings true in this case, that China is a place with lots of capital controls. Like uh, they, like you won't believe the controls they have for their, for their finances. People can't bring a certain uh, amount out of the country in one go. They, they have a lot of that. 
And as a result, they definitely, I think, will see Bitcoin as a huge threat. Mm, yeah, yeah, really can't, I can't, I can't imagine what it would be like living there. Um, it's, so I guess, I guess you have to get to where people have um, enough affluence where they're capable of dealing in cryptocurrency before it can become a tool to use against dictators. Like it's not gonna, it's not gonna work in like sub-Saharan Africa until it's uh, more widely used. But do you? So you, you've written about yeah the story of Bitcoin since two thousand thirteen. Like, what do you think is the? What's the ceiling on how big cryptocurrency can get? Like, is it? Are we seeing like is now the peak um, of of adoption? Do you think there's like a a chance that the the cryptocurrencies could be used to like in everyday transactions, like am I going to be able to pay for my cinema ticket with with Dogecoin? Like, but like realistically, do it, not just you know like a gimmicky way of doing it. Yeah, I think absolutely. And one of the reasons I say that is we, I think, especially because of the pandemic, we are seeing runaway inflation to uh, an unimaginable degree. A while ago, I was. I think just a couple of days ago, I read the headline that Argentina was going to freeze grocery prices for, for 90 days. And imagine the sort of world where such a headline is possible. <laughs> and, you know, Bitcoin, it's, uh, it's considered an inflation hedge. And I think a lot, uh, we will see a few more of these Latin American countries follow in the footsteps of El Salvador. And depending on you know how you define cryptocurrency, the if you want to include the central bank digital currencies, every country is making one now. And while I think adoption in other places might not be near that of China, I think that will become quite a prevalent thing. Mm. Do you think? What do you make of the whole El Salvador experiment? Do you think it's going to succeed in any way? Mm. Well, I want to say I hope it succeeds, but I can also see that the president who, who implemented it, he, he's a bit of a polarizing guy and he is facing a lot of uh, accusations of uh, human rights abuses and uh, abuse of power. And uh, it actually reminds me of how Donald Trump, when he was under fire, he's constantly under fire, but this one time he tried to make a distraction and he said, we are going to create the Space Force. Yeah, you remember that. So, and I, I think ultimately in, if you are able to so quickly usher in a law in the world of politics, easy come, easy go, mm -hmm. his terms are gonna come up soon. If he can implement this so easily, his successor can remove it just as easily. Mm. But I hope it succeeds. Do you think it's realistic for, um for a, a nation to use a cryptocurrency as like one of their base currencies, given that there's, they have essentially no control over it. Like aside from maybe use it, like having their own like state owned nodes on the lightning network. Uh, do you see, do you see it being like a, a possibility or is it, is this just like a really bad idea for them not to have their, their control of, of their currency? And in, in which case they should maybe like think about actually like making digital currencies. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I would see this as a bit of a dichotomy in, in the sense that if the government were to able to exert control on this, it won't really be a cryptocurrency anymore. It won't be decentralized. Mm. You know, it, its very existence, uh, very identity lies in the fact that it's not controlled by the government. I personally, I really want to see the divorce of money and state. We have seen that for church and state. Maybe the next thing we should see is money and state, but uh, you're right. It's going to be hard to find a government that's going to find that palatable. What do you think the ideal conditions for that would be? Well, I think, like, in, in like, what would be yeah, the the best conditions for this to succeed theoretically? If like you just like, it doesn't have to be a specific nation, but just in in this world where we're going to have, we would call it like sheepland. Like what? What would be what would be the ideal conditions for which they could adopt a cryptocurrency in a decentralized way that would then, yeah, divorce itself from government? Probably an exacerbation of our current situation. Uh, if we see 
more rising inflation. I I read a a headline today from Venezuela that people were shaving off flakes of gold to pay for things, and stuff is going really bad. Uh, I think if things become worse than that, uh, that those are ripe conditions for that to happen. Mm. So yeah, someone's just put in the comments there. Um, D said, uh, "No government currency; they ca- they can have too much control." So I guess this is this is one of the things that that people really really like about this sort of decentralized, unregulated, wild west space about it. Um, and one thing I'd read from you actually was you you were sort of saying to boomers and Gen Xers and um, beyond that if you don't get it, speak to a millennial. Like what, why do you think this is? Yeah. Like it's a great, it's a great point, but like in your, in your understanding, like why is that, uh, like what is the appeal to millennials that doesn't transition beyond like our generation? Mm -hmm. I think it's related to what we talked about just now when you, uh, well, when you have a solution, uh, you have to have a problem and, Sometimes I think maybe the boomers they they've never actually had that problem. They were they were born into a, a booming economy, and they had they had great jobs, great healthcare. Uh, university was cheap for them, and they they never had to think too much about this. But I, I think for us and um, you know me, I I didn't grow up with a lot of money, and I when I turned eighteen, it was two thousand and eight. That, that, that was when the economy got wrecked. And why did that happen? Uh, the banks gambled too much. To put, put, to put it simplistically, they gambled too much, and, but they were rewarded for their failures uh, because they ultimately got bailed out. And, you know, I, and I think a combination of everything, our, my generation's dire economic circumstances and, and this frustration and everything, and we're seeking a way out of that. And I think... Bitcoin, it represents that. Okay. So do you think that there's like a, a counterfactual world where Bill Clinton doesn't sign the Commodities Futures Act um, and repeal, uh, ooh, what was the, the regulation, um, Glass-Steagall, and where none of this subprime mortgage lending goes on, and then the 2008 crash perhaps happens, but not in a crazy crazy way and then we don't have cryptocurrency like do you see that as being like a major root of of this this technology like the people's thought okay we these these people are are charlatans and gamblers like we we need to get the money out of the hands of of yeah finance Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's a very good point i i I think definitely um Bitcoin's release in the aftermath of the financial crisis, that is not a coincidence. Um, but, I, and, but I also think that if not this, something else would have led to the creation of this because we were heading in that direction. So if it was not the subprime mortgage thing, something else would have caused the financial crisis. Okay. Um, so I also saw one of the things that you were interested in was, uh, was NFTs. Um, and I've been trying to work out what the utility is of them. Do you have a case for why it's not just money laundering? Yes, I, I'm <laughs> glad you asked that. I have stopped me if you've heard this one, the story of Vitalik Buterin and the world of Warcraft. Um, I haven't, but, you know, I'm, yeah. So even if I had, yeah, I'm sure there's some people listening that haven't. Mm-hmm. So he is the, the main creator of Ethereum. And there's this famous story about him that he he loved to play World of Warcraft and he upgraded his character to many levels and he was able to cast this warlock spell. And he worked very hard for that. And when you're so powerful in World of Warcraft, you know, your, your fellow friends think you're cool as well. So that digital thing, that represented something to him. And one day, the company behind World of Warcraft, Blizzard, just arbitrarily took it away. And in his words, he cried himself to sleep. And <laughs> I think this is, if you look at like superhero or supervillain origin stories, this is a, a very important part of Vitalik. And, and what this says is that our, our lives are increasingly online. 
And the things we do online, they are very important to us. You know, what Blizzard did to Vitalik, uh, imagine if your government just took away your driver's license for no reason. Um, they, of course, can't do that because in the real world, we have rights and, you know, we can, we can sue the government. But online, we are behold just, beholden just unconditionally to these digital masters. And, you know, imagine if tomorrow Google just takes away your email account. Uh, just like that. And it can do that because you have no right to that. And so what an NFT represents, I, I think pictures of apes or ducks, uh, punks, they, you, we might not immediately see a lot of use cases in that, but I think at its heart, it represents that World of Warcraft spell uh, that Blizzard took from Vitalik, but it is a digital artifact that you own that nobody can take away from you. And I think that represents, I think, uh, a more democratized internet. We are definitely not there yet, but I think that's a it's it's going toward that direction. Okay, so you're talking about it less as like because right. So the the thing that I had heard um, people talk about with with relation to this was just that they would it would be like when you go to your friend's house in like one of the the virtual worlds, like uh, like Decentraland, for example, and you go in and then. Um, you like walk into his his uh, his flat or whatever, um, and like on the wall, then there'd be a whole bunch of digital artwork, and he'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's the NFT, or the the original <laughs> Alex Jones tweet, or like some something like that that doesn't exist anymore, um, and that that could because yeah, the 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 NFT of it was was sold, um, but you're saying it could be used more as like a form of ownership and like a, a way to fight back against us being so beholden for even things like our email accounts, maybe like our social media accounts and that they couldn't be deleted because we would own them. Kind of like that. I think those are, they, they are different branches of the same tree. So yeah. Uh, what you described in a metaverse going around looking at digital artifacts, I think Yes, uh, th that is one that is one use of it. But why it's being used that, that way, the the underlying utility uh, at its heart, it's it's the same as, as what I just described. Because mm, it's yeah, it's like it's just a stamp of it's a digital stamp of of ownership, really, isn't it? That's is that that's basically all it is, right? Um, oh yeah, that's all it is. Mm, yeah, because I mean, we've had um, a friend of mine had written um, a few pieces on different uh, like nft versions of trading cards uh he did an article for us about um uh, a house that had been sold as an nft like an actual house not a house in uh, like a digital world um but do you do you see this like becoming a thing where there will be i don't know like ebay for nfts where like people will just trade all of these things from the digital world on like one marketplace hmm. well i don't know about one marketplace but uh, we already have several marketplaces and i'm not sure if one will emerge as the dominant one but i i do think current nfts a lot of them are overpriced and i think just like how uh if you remember Bitcoin, when it rose to 20,000 in 2017, but it just fell all the way down to 3,000. So, uh, you know, I think NFTs are in that kind of a cycle as well. Mm. So uh, are you bullish on Bitcoin long term? Like, uh, do you think it's the one? Do you have a, a currency that you prefer more or is Bitcoin the, like what you think is going to be? Yeah, the, the one moving forward. Yeah, I think absolutely Bitcoin will be the one. and But that doesn't mean there won't be other coins existing alongside it. But I think for what it does, there is nothing other than Bitcoin. Okay. Um, someone's just asked actually a great question in the comments here. They said, uh, okay, back up. So I can own someone else's tweet, picture or whatever. What if that person decided to sell the same tweet um, this is something that I've actually not quite got my head around yet. Like what, like what's to mm -hmm. stop someone just, you know, taking a picture of the original tweet, like a screen grab, like we can now, and then yeah, 
stamping it as an and, and minting it as an NFT and then selling that is is like what is the what prevents that from happening and like giving you the legit ownership of it because an image is different because I've heard people talking about it like if you have say you can get a copy of the Mona Lisa but it's not the Mona Lisa like there's still the thing that's there and you can look at like the brush strokes and you've got like the piece of artwork why is that different with yeah with with nfts in a, in a digital way why can't someone just like mint a screenshot of the same tweet or picture or something yeah so an nft only has value when it's minted by the owner so if you take a screenshot and you mint it uh everyone's gonna know it's not minted by the owner it's uh it's a uh, it's like a forgery of the mona lisa and as for why the owner can't just mint another one and sell it uh, people will know there are two. So imagine if Da Vinci, if he drew a second Mona Lisa, people will know which is the second and which is the first. And if he draws 10 of those, uh, the value will tank. Mm, okay. And I guess it sucks if you if you were the one who bought the first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there isn't technically anything to stop them doing it, but it would still not be the original, basically, is what you're saying, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, then do you, what do you make of the, so yeah, so I said before I was going to talk about the, the Bitcoin civil war with, um, Kurt, uh, with Kurt tomorrow. What do you make of this like internal civil war? Maybe not just specifically in Bitcoin, but just the kind of like tribal madness that we see with uh different like cr different people who like different cryptocurrency communities like like people who are really really into cardano or, or like uh, slamming people for simping bitcoin or you know the there's the dogecoin versus um sheeb um, thing <laughs> like what do you make of this like internal fighting or is this just people being stupid or it like do they have a point well, I think it depends on the uh, on the specific fight, and I think some people definitely have a point. And I, I think uh, what all of this shows is that people feel very passionate about their viewpoints. But ultimately, I would point to this story that I read that uh, this guy was saying I I uh, persuaded my friend to invest in Bitcoin a while back, and my friend has a whole Bitcoin. He was asking me how to invest it, and I was like, wow, you have a whole Bitcoin. And, and he said, he, uh, my friend later told me that, quote unquote, the Bitcoin that he bought was Ethereum. So <laughs> uh, I think despite how there are various distinct camps in crypto, I think the outside world, when it looks at them, they still use Bitcoin as a word to describe the whole thing. Like how, you know, some people use the word Coke to say any carbonated soft drink. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's how they look at it. So like when when we're talking about this becoming like a, a widespread piece of technology um that's used as a, a more day-to-day -day sort of yeah, currency. What is the timeline? Like where I I struggle to see anyone who's not like super tech savvy over the age of about 35 ever using this um, unless they're absolutely like have no other choice. Mm -hmm. I just feel like they, uh, like, uh, I, I said to my mom last night, it was like, oh, you know, Bitcoin's hit an all-time high. And she's like, well, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, you know, it's 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 cool. It means, like, more people are buying it and, the you know, it's becoming more valuable. Hopefully that means that it will become more widely adopted. And, and she was just like, and, you know, it's just, it's, and she, she, she thinks it's, it's magic internet money. Like, is it just magic internet money? And, and do you think that that generation will ever uh, adopt it? Yeah, the, that's, a, that's a great, great point uh, you raised because I think 20 years ago, people would say the same thing about the internet and all um, online services we have now. And they say that with good reason because back then those services were really clunky. Uh, if you remember trying to code a GeoCities website, because I, I, I remember that. And uh, remember when, so I used like this social networking service called Friendster. And you were like, you had to do your own HTML codes for, for a lot of that. And <laughs> yeah, the, the, definitely the older generation at the time might not get it, but these services, they improved and they streamlined. And I, I think ultimately 
we will we will see that for crypto as well. Mm. Wrong bit. So it's uh, then. So let's to to sort of wrap ourselves up here. Why should people go and buy your book? Like, what is what is your uh, your th- your sixty second pitch to them? Mm-hmm. Well, this is meant to read like a novel, and it's a narrative nonfiction and. You know, lots of people look at it from computer science and monetary policy. This is about the human condition. It's about the the people and their stories at the heart of it all. And uh, I was named uh, among, I was nominated for Kobo's Emerging Writer Prize last year. So I think I'm a, I'm a half decent writer. Well, um, I cannot wait to get my copy in the post. I'm hoping that's going to arrive when I when I get back home here. Um, so, Ethan, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, it's been it's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, everyone, go uh, go check out his book. Links are in the description below. Um, so yeah, man, thanks for your time. Mm-hmm. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. No problem.